What does the Bible say about Allah? Is this the same as God? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question. Pastor Clay's answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. That's what keeps the believers going. That's the faith that we have that ultimately God wins this battle, that God is in control. And no matter how it looks in those latter days, God will bring about exactly as he has planned his kingdom in his timing for his purposes, for his honor and for his glory. The Antichrist. Just the mention of his name conjures up images of evil personified. In Daniel chapter 7, he's the little horn. The Apostle Paul referred to him as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Jesus himself referred to him as the abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24. So who is this Antichrist? I'll put my throne above God's throne. I'll be like God. Satan obtains what Satan has sought from the very beginning, worship. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. In our year-long series entitled The Revelation, we come today to chapter 13 and the rise of the Antichrist. There is a day coming when the Antichrist, the beast, the lawless one, will come to power and he will rule over this world. You can mark it down. You can count on it. And then what follows are really probably the darkest days during the tribulation period. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse found in Matthew 24, warned his disciples of the coming of many false prophets and antichrists. The Apostle John warned the church in 1 John that the spirit of antichrist was already working in the world. But both Jesus and John, as well as other passages in the Bible, tell us that there is one coming someday who will be the true Antichrist. We're glad you've joined us today as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. take just a little bit of time, not the, not the whole story, but a little bit of time to review just a little bit with you what we looked at a couple of weeks ago and, and before that, and as we move on into a new section of the book of Revelation. We are this morning in Revelation chapter 13. If you have a Bible with you, uh, please turn there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, it will be up on the screen as well. But, but I do like to, from time to time, do a little bit of review to kind of catch people up on, on where we are and, and what's going on and, and that sort of thing. If you have been with us through this study, uh, you may remember that I have said that this section of Scripture, Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14, are, are what is known as a parenthetical section of the book of Revelation. A parenthetical section or a parenthetical pause in the timeline. In other words, chapters 12, 13, and 14 of the book of Revelation don't advance the story chronologically or or time-wise. Do you understand what I'm saying? Chapters 12, 13, and 14 pause for a little bit to fill in some informational gaps for us about some of the events and some of the characters that have been or will be introduced in the book of Revelation. You with me so far? All right. Don't worry, I'll lose you in a few minutes. (laughs) Now, let me say this. Revelation chapter 13, as much of the book of Revelation does, and we've talked about this, uh, uses a lot of symbolism. 
And, and we're going to see that this morning. And some of this looks kind of complicated. And some of it sounds like a history lesson. And, and so I want to encourage you. You may want to go back and, and catch up. All the messages are online. You can go to our website and uh, click on media and, and go to listen to messages. And you can find every one of the Revelation messages starting from the first Sunday in January on. You can catch up that way or pass them on to somebody else that you think might uh, enjoy listening uh, to them. But, uh, but it will get kind of complicated at, at times, especially if you're joining us for the first time. But hang in there. Come back next week and, uh, and just see what God has to say uh, to us. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, the chapter that we looked at two weeks ago, in that chapter we were introduced to some of the characters or some of the players, if you will, in the end times events. We were introduced in there to the woman with child. And if you were here, you know that I said that the woman with child equals or symbolizes Israel, the nation of Israel. And God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. We've talked about that some, and we'll see it even more as we progress through the book. So the woman with child symbolizes Israel. The red dragon symbolizes Satan. And all of this is in Revelation chapter 12, and I'm just reviewing just briefly with you. Uh, The the, uh, child represents Jesus Christ or symbolizes uh, Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 12, we were also introduced to Michael, the archangel. So those were four of the players, if you will, in the end times events that we were introduced to in chapter 12. In chapter 13, we're going to be introduced to two more of the main players in the end times events. We're going to look at one of them today and one of them next week as we as we see this story beginning to, to build towards a climax, and as we're filling in some informational gaps in these three chapters and learning, okay, no, no, so this is what, and this is what's happening now, and it's all kind of coming together as this picture. Revelation chapter 13, beginning this morning in verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. There's that three and a half year time period we keep seeing over and over again. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life, book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. 
If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Let's get into this in the time that we have and see what we can can find out. Uh, Now, my New American Standard starts out with, and the dragon stood on the sands of the seashore. It's possible your translation has, and he stood on the sands of the seashore. That's hard to say altogether. Um, or it's even possible, I think King James translates it, and, uh, and I stood on the sand of the seashore, implying that, that John, the one who's having this vision, was standing there. But the best translation seems to be he, or in this case, uh, the dragon is, is translated into there or put into there, and the dragon stood on the sands of the seashore. Gather that from the end of chapter 12 where it says, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children and keep, who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And the very next verse, verse 13, they would say, And he stood on the sand of the seashore, meaning the dragon. So the vision is that John has. John has this vision where he sees Satan. We've already told you that Satan is, is the dragon standing on the edge of this seashore. This is, this is what he sees as, as he's standing there. Stood at the sand seashore, and then he, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads. On his horn were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So Satan stands at the seashore and sees this creature, which we'll dis- discover who that is in a minute, coming up out of the, of the sea. In the Bible, when the sea is used symbolically, it represents mankind or, or it represents the nations. It represents humanity. So the sea, in this case, in Revelation chapter 13, is a representation of, of the nations, the, the people groups of the world. And as Satan stands there, he sees this beast coming up out of, or you could say calls forth this beast coming up out of the sea. So here's what we know. We know that this creature, this beast, is a person. Coming up out of humanity, out of the nations, comes a person who will be used by Satan to oversee his demonic work in the end times, who will rule this, this world during the end times events. You and I uh, know this beast as the Antichrist. That's who this beast is. It's the Antichrist. Now here's what we know about him. John says he sees him coming up out of the sea, and he says he's having ten horns. Let's start with that. Ten horns, seven heads, diadems, or ruling crowns on his horns, and blasphemous names. This is a freaky-looking creature, right? What is this all about? Well, here's what we know. We know that the ten horns represent ten uh, nations, and or rulers, the ten horns on this beast symbolize ten nations and or, it could be their ruler, obviously would be part of that, and or rulers who will be in power or come into power in the end times. Okay, well, how do you know that? Revelation chapter 17 says this, and the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. Remember, John is writing this 2,000 years ago. 
who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So here's what we know. We know that in the end times, we know that when the Antichrist comes forth, we know that there will be ten nations, or it may be geographical regions, or ten kings connected, or presidents of countries, whatever, ten rulers of these ten nations, or these ten regions, whatever, who will be in power or come into power during the end times, and they will give their power, their authority to the Antichrist. Now, we don't have time to look at it all uh, today, but in the book of Daniel, we find out that three of them are conquered by the Antichrist, and the other seven, when they see that happen, apparently just kind of surrender to him. But in any event, these ten horns are ten kingdoms that, that are given to the Antichrist that give him his authority on the earth. Now, he not only has ten horns, the text says that he has seven heads. By the way, you can, you can figure this out, but the, the, ten, the ten diadems simply mean that these were ruling kingdoms, these were ruling uh, leaders or authorities, and they, they, they gave their ruling crowns to the Antichrist. But there is also these, these seven heads. Who are these seven heads? Y'all are probably wondering that, aren't you? Matter of fact, why don't you just ask me that? So glad you asked. So glad you asked. The seven heads um, represent, as best I can tell, and there's some, I'll t- tell you this, there's some variance of opinion on this, but as best I can tell from Scripture, the seven heads represent seven kingdoms or seven empires or seven world governments that have existed throughout the history of mankind. Remember, this is, this is Satan's time that we're looking at here in Revelation chapter 13. He, he is coming on the earth. He's, he's wreaking havoc. He's doing all these things. He's, he's bringing with him this antichrist, this man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him in 1 Thessalonians. He is, he is coming onto the earth. And these seven heads represent seven uh, kingdoms, seven empires, or seven world governments that have existed. As you see up there, also, it also represents seven hills. There's a double meaning uh, to these seven heads. Seven hills, meaning the seven hills on which the, uh, the Rome, the city of Rome is built. I'll explain in a minute. Uh, seven hills in which the city of Rome is built and seven empires that have and will exist on the earth. Okay, how do you know that? Back to Revelation chapter 17. Here is the mind which has wisdom. In other words, John's saying, now listen, here, here, I'm going I'm to give you this. You can figure this out if you'll study this. Here's what he says. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, we'll see this further on. This is not the woman that we looked at in chapter 12. The woman with child is Israel. This woman represents Rome, and we'll, we'll get to that. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, watch this, and they are seven kings. Five have been, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Well, what does all of that mean? Well, Revelation 17 says it represents seven hills or seven mountains, and it also represents seven kings or empires. Five have been, 
One is, remember John is writing this 2,000 years ago, keep that in mind, and one will be. Again, there is variance of opinion on this, but the best understanding I have of who these seven heads, these seven empires are, is that they are the seven empires that have and will exist in the history of mankind. Remember, he says, five have been. Here's the five that have been. Starts with the Assyrian Empire. Now, when we say world empires or world governments, that's not to say that they ruled the entire world. But they were, at the time that they existed, they were the most powerful empire or government in the world, and they ruled what was basically known, most of what was known of the world at that time. So you had the Assyrian, you had the Egyptian, you had the Babylonian, you had the Medo-Persian empire, and you had the Greek empire. You had those five. John says five have been. We know this historically. We know those five empires had already existed. They had already come and gone. They had passed from the scene by the time John writes this letter. But in Revelation 17, John said five have been. And then what did he say? One is. Anybody want to guess what that would have been 2,000 years ago? The Roman Empire. That would be the sixth. The Assyrian, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman Empire. And then John says, and one which shall be. Anybody want to guess which one that is? The Antichrist's kingdom, which will come. So the seven heads represent seven world empires. And what you need to understand that in one way or other, each one of those empires was built on the one previous. And all of it is building up towards this climactic conclusion to man's time on the earth. And the Antichrist is gaining power from those seven empires. Five John said, have been, and they had been by that time. Now we we could say six have been, and one is yet to come. Now, listen, all that's, uh, by the way, the blasphemous names simply is making reference, I believe, to the fact that these were blasphemous kingdoms. Uh, Each one of these kingdoms that existed, uh, the rulers that ruled over them set themselves up as gods and thought of themselves as gods. The religion that their culture practiced uh, uh, worshipped a plurality of gods with all different kinds of, of worship practices. And the lifestyle in which those kingdoms promoted was anything but a godly lifestyle. It was ungodliness. So in that sense, they were blasphemous names on these kingdoms because what they promoted and what they did was blasphemous. It was anti-God, anti-true God. I know that's a lot, okay? I know that's a lot to take in in one verse. One of the reasons I give you an opportunity, and all of you may not take advantage of it, but one of the reasons I give you an opportunity to take notes is so that you can write some things down so that you hopefully can, during your quiet time during the week, go back and, and look these verses up and make, look at these cross-references and look at, at these notes that you filled in and, and not just the blank lines, but maybe things you've written off on the side. And you can study this text and you begin to come to a greater and greater understanding of exactly how this all comes together in the sovereign plan of God. It's amazing. I know it's a lot to take in. But in verse 2, John goes on with a little more descriptive detail of this beast. And who's the beast? Come on, who's the beast? Antichrist. That's right. Come on, doing good. And the beast, which I saw, and John says, "This this is what I'm looking at, he's seeing this vision. He says, he's like a leopard. And his feet are like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power 
and his throne and great authority. He says he's like a leopard, he's like a bear, and he's like a lion. Now, immediately, here's what I would think. And, and I think that you can apply this, but immediately I would think, okay, he's like a leopard. Uh, I think of a leopard as fast, quick, uh, comes on its prey and, and, and attacks. That would certainly be true of the Antichrist. We know, biblically, that the Antichrist will move very swiftly, that he will come to his throne very quickly. And the, the, the feet like a bear, boy, that tells me that he's strong, that he's powerful, that he can't be knocked over by any of the kingdoms that may, may have thoughts like that. That's absolutely true. He will be strong and he will be powerful. And like a lion, that, that makes me think, boy, he's ferocious and he's intimidating. Anybody ever heard a lion roar? And the Antichrist will certainly be that as well. He will be ferocious and he will be intimidating in, in his ruthless ascent to power. All of that is true, and, and, and you can make application of all of that here in this text. But according to Daniel chapter 7, there's more of a meaning to this lion, bear, li- uh, who did I forget? leopard, bear, lion thing than just that. By the way, uh, Daniel chapter 7 is the companion chapter to Revelation 13. It's the Old Testament equivalent of Revelation. Matter of fact, if I were you, if you had your Bible with you, I would just write up there at the top left or right, wherever your Bible says Revelation 13, I would just write beside there, see Daniel chapter 7. Because together, those two, Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13, give us a fuller understanding of who this beast, who this antichrist is. Interestingly enough, we don't have time to read it all today, but interestingly enough, Daniel chapter 7 uses these same animal symbols. Leopard, Bear, lion. Daniel uses the same one in his description of the Antichrist. But here's here's one of the interesting parts. He uses them in reverse order. He speaks of the lion, the bear, and the leopard. Which, if you think about, makes sense. Because in Daniel chapter 7, again, I I wish I had time to read it all, but I don't. You can go back and study it. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is making reference to three of the kingdoms that existed that we mentioned prior, a few moments ago, the three that really began to seize, seize power over, over, the, over the entire existing earth. Daniel's looking, back, uh, Daniel's looking forward at them. John is looking backward at them. So it makes sense that they would be in reverse order. Daniel speaks of the lion, which represented, even in that day, the lion was the symbol of the Babylonian Empire. This, this powerful Uh, world government that rose up. The bear symbolizing the Medo-Persian empire and the leopard representing the Greek empire. Daniel mentions all three of them and then Daniel says in chapter 7 that there's another one coming after this that's that's more powerful than all all, all of those before. More powerful than the lion, more powerful than the bear, more powerful than the leopard. And in the order that we looked at a few moments ago, which empire would that be? The Roman Empire, and historically that was certainly true. The Roman Empire was far more powerful than any of the previous three because each one of those conquered the previous one and built on it and became more and more powerful. And so the Roman Empire became the most powerful of all. Here's the problem, though. Daniel mentions this fourth empire in the context of the Antichrist, who clearly had not come on the scene by the time the Roman Empire existed. Okay. What does all of that mean? Here's what it means. It means that apparently there will be a revival of the ancient Roman Empire. 
that existed 2,000 years ago that, that died off, that was eventually evaporated, faded away, conquered, whatever you want to look at it historically, that empire, that Roman empire will rise again. It will come into power again, headed by the Antichrist, which then ties into Revelation 17 and the seven hills and ruling from Rome and all that kind of stuff. Aren't you glad you asked? And so what it means is that the Antichrist someday is going to come to power, he's going to rule from Rome, and that the Roman government will basically be resurrected. Let me talk about that. Verse 3. Verse 3 gets a little tricky. Verse 2 are easy. (laughs) Verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, what in the world does all that mean? Well, Most conservative scholarship believe that this is a reference to the fact that the Antichrist, as he comes into power, as he's coming into power, will be or apparently will be slain. He'll be killed. We already know from Revelation chapter 6 that he comes initially as a a peacemaker. And he comes claiming to be able to make peace and he has some success with that. But apparently his full rise to power and complete authority over the entire world doesn't happen until this event, according to that interpretation. That he will either be killed or it will look as if he's been killed. There's debate on whether he actually is dead or not because a lot of people say, well, Satan can't, doesn't have the power to, to bring life. Only God can do that. So he couldn't really be dead. It just appears that he's dead. Whichever the case may be, he, 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 this, this seemingly miraculous uh, resurrection will cause people to say, oh, wow, look at that guy. We knew he was good, but, but now look at him. Man, he, he, can, he, can, he has the power to rise from the dead. We got to follow this. We got to follow this guy, which is what the, the text appears to say. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. That may, may very well be the proper interpretation of verse 3. There is another interpretation, and that is that verse 3 is referring simply to the the ancient Roman Empire. That the Roman Empire, which had died, no longer exists, as it comes back into power uh, with these, how many many nations? How many? Ten nations, that's right. As these ten nations come back into power, and as the Antichrist seizes power, that, that Rome will, in essence, the empire will come alive again. It's almost as if it was dead and it was resurrected. And the people will say, oh my goodness, and, and that, that's what it's referring to. That it's Roman Empire that was dead and it came back to life. Listen, here's what I want to say. I'm okay with either one of those interpretations. Because the bottom line is this. There is a day coming when the Antichrist, the beast, the lawless one, will come to power and he will rule over this world. You can mark it down. You can count on it. And then what follows in verses 4 through 8 are really probably the darkest days during the tribulation period where what happens is Satan Satan obtains what Satan has sought from the very beginning. Anybody know what it is? Worship. Worship. From the very beginning, Isaiah chapter 14, I'll ascend, I'll put my throne above God's throne. I'll be like God. That's always been the lie of the master deceiver. The irony is he's deceived even himself in thinking that he actually can be at least co-equal to God or even greater than God. And here in verses 4 through 8, you find out that the whole world begins to bow down and worship him and worship his antichrist. 
the whole world, except for those still living at that time, and many will have died, but there will be those still living at that time who have come to faith in the true Christ, in Jesus Christ, and refuse to bow down, and we'll see the part where they refuse to take the beast's number, the 666, all of that. That's still to come. We'll see every bit of that. But they will not bow their knee to the Antichrist, and as a result of that, most of them will be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. That's really what verse... 7 says, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people group and tongue and nation was given to them. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. By the way, verse 8 causes some people a little bit of, little bit of trouble Because some people look at verse 8 and and they say, well, does that mean that God has already chosen all of those that are going to be in there? Because it says their name's in there from the foundation of the world. Does that mean God has already chosen all of those that are going to get in and everybody else is just out of luck? Let me say two things about that. Number one, God having knowledge of all of those who will choose him is not the same thing as saying God chooses the ones he wants. It's not the same thing. The second thing I would call to your attention is that in the original language that the New Testament was written in, in in the Greek, this phrase that says, before the foundation, uh, from from the foundation of the world, that phrase right there, that little bit, from the foundation of the world, in the the original language, that phrase comes at the end of of the Greek sentence. And so the King James and the NIV actually translated that way. So the NIV looks like this. All inhabitants of the earth were, but all whose names have not been written in the book belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. See the difference? The NIV and the King James put that phrase at the end of the sentence where it appears in the Greek uh, as well. From the creation of the world was the Christ slain. So if that kind of causes you problems, maybe those two things will help. Verse 9, in closing, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, if you've been with us, you know, hey, wait a minute, I remember hearing that phrase before. Yeah, it showed up a lot in the early chapters of the book. Do you remember? Only there, in the early chapters of the book, the phrase actually was, let anyone who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It doesn't say that this time. Now it just says, let him who has an ear hear. The reason is, I believe, is because the church has been removed. The church is no longer here. It's been raptured or snatched out at this point. And so John's invitation is simply to anyone's that would listen to it and and would say, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And he closes with this promise is really what verse 10 is. Basically what he's saying is the destruction, the judgment, the persecution that the Antichrist and his forces will bring, that will all come back on them. The promise is, and, and John says, that's what keeps the believers going. That's the faith that we have, that ultimately God wins this battle, that God is in control, and no matter how it looks in those latter days, God will bring about exactly as he has planned his kingdom in his timing for his purposes, for his honor, and for his glory. And to that, I say, amen. It's going to be a dark and dreadful time. Most of the world will bow down and worship Satan and his puppet. 
Those who refuse will suffer the consequences. The Antichrist's empire will be a rebirth of the ancient Roman Empire, and he will rule with an iron hand. But as we're learning today, it's only for a short period of time. It's all part of God's ultimate plan for restoring righteousness and establishing His eternal kingdom on this earth. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. It is Q&A time at Cross Culture Church. It's something that... uh that we all obviously look forward to each week. Q&A time, if you're new here, each week we answer a question that someone has turned in and we have Q&A cards out there on an t- informational table. You can pick those up, drop them in, an offering, in the offering box at any time. But questions that people have uh, just in regards to things in their lives or things they've heard about and what does the Bible have to say about that. So today's Q&A question really has to do with another religion and it looks like this. What does the Bible say about Allah? Is this the same as God? We live in a culture, quite honestly, where the idea of that is, is promoted pretty, pretty positively. Uh, the idea of, of a universal uh, religion where all religions are basically the same and you mix them up in a hat and pull one out and they're all about the same. I, I've even heard that from, from time to time. Hey, we're all going to the same place and we're all working on getting to the same place. So in this case, the question, what does the Bible say about Allah? Is this the same as God? Well, the short answer simply is no. No. Allah is not the same as the God that uh, we understand to be the one true God. Now, the, the, the name Allah in, in Arabic language means uh, God. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, one of Jesus' statements uh, on the cross where he was in, in uh, Aramaic, which all those Semitic languages are kind of connected together. Um, that phrase where Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The, 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 uh, the Aramaic would be, Allah, Allah, lama sabachthani. So you can kind of hear the whole Allah uh, close similarity uh, in there. So the name Allah does mean God. The problem is when a, when a Muslim uses the name Allah, he does not mean the same God that you and I mean. Now, there is a similarity uh, Muslims, 
the, the religion known as Islam, by the way, was started by their prophet, who they consider a prophet, Muhammad, uh, in the early 7th century, somewhere around 6, 610 A.D., I forget the exact date, somewhere in there, where Muhammad began a new religion. And uh, it's pretty well known that he borrowed from Judaism and Christianity some of the, some of the ideas informing his religion. And one of those being the idea that there is one God. Now that we would say, yes, that's true. There is one God. And, and Muslims believe that there is one God. The difference is they do not believe that God has revealed himself in three persons as we believe. And as we believe, Scripture clearly teaches that God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Muslims would hold Jesus in high regard, but only as a prophet, a man who was a prophet, clearly not God. For them, it would be blasphemous to call uh, Jesus God. But they would say that he was a prophet, not as great as Muhammad, because Muhammad is the greatest prophet as far as they are concerned. So they would deny what we call the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is a basic belief of, of historical Christianity, that God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The idea of God becoming a man to a Muslim would be, again, blasphemous. The, the other major difference between Islam and Christianity and their idea of Allah and our idea of God is that salvation is obtained in the Muslim faith through works, through the keeping of the five pillars of faith, as, as, as they would call them, through keeping of those and by Allah in the end deciding. A Muslim can't tell you, as I understand it, can't really tell you whether they will reach their idea of heaven or not. It's all up to Allah and just how I guess how he feels on that particular day and, and how well you have done. Where we believe that our God sacrificed himself and that we might come into a relationship with him through faith, not based on works. As a matter of fact, God's word says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. So Allah while the name may mean God, clearly does not mean the God that uh, Christianity understands. And that's Q&A for today.